Today, our topic is the maintenance of AML monitoring systems. It's uh, myself, Chuck Taylor, the head of Financial Crimes Advisory at AML RightSource, and Tim White, our special advisor and sanctions guru uh, that join you today. And Tim, I'll let you start off. So in, in the beginning, it's kind of um, thinking about AML monitoring systems and whether they're a model or not. And if yes, there's a lot that goes along with it. So what are your thoughts on, on whether they're models? Well, I think it, first it's important to set the stage that the, the guidance for model validation was predominantly focused on the lending side of the house from the financial crisis. It's kind of an extrapolation to bring it into the AML space. Is it a model? It certainly can be a model. I don't think it is always a model. Um, I think that the key elements here is how complex is your institution? and how complex are the scenarios or the typologies that you might be monitoring for. Um, I just kind of jump in and say, you know, having worked with systems for a number of years, if your system is just doing peer group analysis, or if your system is just looking for who does the most cash, the most ACH, the most wires, I think it's a tool at, at, at that level. But at the point you start looking at, you know, multiple social security deposits to a single account. Now we're looking for a typology of possibly social security fraud. Another one would be private ATMs that aren't getting the corresponding debit or credit back from the cash that's going into the ATM. I think at that point we start calling it a model. And I think if you're a large institution and you're filing you know, say 10 SARS or so a, a week, you know what suspicious activity looks like. You know what you're trying to, to detect. And at that point, I think you're, you're jumping into a model. What are your thoughts, Chuck? I would agree, uh, you know, and putting my BSA officer hat on, um, when I was in that place, I didn't want any of my systems to be a model, right? Because then you have to start validating them. <laughs> And the, the nice thing about the being- It becomes the, work. Yeah, but it, right. And the, I guess in simplest terms, as a BSA officer, it wasn't really my um, responsibility to decide whether my AML system or my sanction system or my customer risk rating system was a model. That was up to our model risk management team. And in most institutions, I'm hoping that's the way things are done. You know, in small institutions, um, there should be somebody else other than the, the folks that are running the model to decide whether it is or not, I think. Um, but I, I remember being in the room with an OCC examiner at a peer group meeting and somebody brought up their customer risk rating model was really just an additive tool, right? If you're a PEP, you get X amount of points. If you do international wire, you get X amount of points, all that kind of thing. And the question was posed to that regulator, is that a model? And he said, no, that sounds like a tool to me. So, I think there is leeway in what you decide is a model yeah. or not, and it depends exactly on what you said, the, the functionality of the system. Is there math going on? Once data is put into the, the tool, is there, there something, an algorithm or math or whatever, that's, that's uh, spitting something out that, that, that needs to be tested, I think is, is the key. Um, so moving on to the next, uh, idea that we're going to talk about today is do the scenarios in your system tie back to your risk assessment? And in my practice, 
we see this a lot where folks have implemented a monitoring system uh, and turned it on and turned on the scenarios that, that they and the vendor decided were, were good for their institution. But there isn't actually uh, a simple matrix that says, hey, in my risk assessment, we've decided that international wires and international ACH and cash deposits and whatever else are all high risk. And then tying that back to the scenarios that are on in the monitoring system to make sure that you're covering those risks. So for instance, we've walked into institutions and the risk assessment might say that, um, you know, we allow our customers to originate international ACH activity and we consider that high risk. But in their monitoring system, they don't have a specific rule to identify anomalies with international ACH activity. So I think it's important to tie those two things back to defend the way you've set up your system to the regulators and auditors and all that kind of thing. And it just kind of makes good sense, but it isn't always that done that way. Any thoughts there? Yeah, I think you gave an excellent example of, you know, a lot of people think they've got complete coverage of, of the exposures that they have. But like you said, they haven't drawn the direct lines back to say, I'm going to detect structuring through this particular scenario. Okay. I'm going to detect, let's say, an IAT through this particular scenario. And what am I specifically looking for in, within that scenario? Um, I, I think that's a critical uh, document from a standpoint of doing that analysis so that you are utilizing the cornerstone of BSA, the risk assessment. And just one other addition there, right? It's, it's, it's looking at your risk assessment. What have you identified as high risk things that can be monitored? And then also looking at uh, typologies and you know, the FFIEC manual and other guidance that identify high risk type things. And you know, making sure that all of those things tie together and that you know, if, if your risk assessment says that something isn't high risk, but the manual or other guidance says that it is, you might wanna at least document why you think it isn't, right? So that, so that somebody can see that you thought about it, and then it isn't potentially a gap either in your documentation or in the monitoring system, so. Um, I, I would throw something else on that, and I think, excellent point there, within the FFIC exam manual, you know, there are lists of higher risk type activities. And if your institution's not doing those types of activities, document that in this same document to say, our risk assessment has determined that we don't have foreign correspondent banking. We don't have parallel banking, we, et cetera, et cetera. So there's not this expectation of you're not monitoring for it. All right, moving on to our next topic, um, the documentation of system output. You wanna give your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think this is critical and, and we're gonna get a little bit deeper into this as we move uh, through these topics. Um, looking at the output of your system, I think it's critical to identify, you know, is your system generating alerts? And of those alerts, how many ultimately become a case and how many ultimately become suspicious activity in a SAR filing? And, and I think ultimately um, it, it's critical that you look at these individual scenarios and have the documentation to say, is it performing at the level that I need it to? Um, if, it's, if it's not, why? 
Um, do we need to go back and do calibration, et cetera? And I think it also goes to the fact that you need to be documenting um, what your anticipated outputs of each of these are. Um, I, I think the critical aspect is everybody wants to get rid of the false positive. I, I get that. But the, the jeopardy there is at what point do you get a greater exposure to a false negative, that being something you should have caught right. that gets through the net, if you will. And I think that's the balance. I think it's unique for each institution. And I think it's critical that each institution dials in on where should this system be set up in my world as opposed to maybe what the vendor actually delivered. Great. And, and just to add a little bit to that, you know, it's documentation of your ratios of alerts to cases to SARS, but then making sure you're doing that by each specific scenario, right? You know, and right. then yeah. being, being able to see over time what the trending is. And, you know, for instance, a structuring scenario normally has a very high alert to, to SAR ratio, uh, while a remote deposit capture historical deviation rule might never <laughs> result in a SAR because those are just kind of things that you have to put in because it's expected. But you know, normally doesn't result in anything interesting. So um, just, I think my, the point I'm trying to make is making sure you're monitoring that and on a, a monthly or whatever basis, make sure that you're assessing last month's ratios with this month's to see if there's anything that is, is out of whack. And maybe you have uh, a specific scenario that is much more productive this month and you, you kind of want to figure out why that is and make sure that you're documenting that. And it could, it could be an indicator of, you know, there's, there's a new type of customer that you're taking on that you didn't know that the sales team is focusing on. Maybe there's more cash intensive uh, customers coming on or whatever it might be. So you want to make sure that you're aware of all those kind of things. I, I think that's an excellent point, particularly prepping for an exam. If you do have an anomaly in that trending, yes. can you explain it to your regulator and say, why did you have a, a, a spike in your, alerts for this particular period of time. So good point, Chuck. Great. So moving on to our next topic, uh, system tuning and optimization. So there is uh, you know, a regulatory expectation that you validate your model on an ongoing basis based on the risk. Most people are validating their AML systems that they've identified as models. On a, <laughs> I was going to say, you made that assumption there. Yeah, an annual or 18-month or two-year basis, whatever they've decided that makes sense for their institution. But they're not always tuning and optimizing them, which, which gives you value, right? A, a, a validation is something you must do just because it's an expectation um, from the regular, regulators. But a tuning and optimization is where you're identifying um, how you can properly tune different scenarios to get you a better false positive ratio or you know if you if back to what we were talking about before if you have a scenario that's more productive this month and why is that and maybe you do tie it back to a new class of customers that you've brought on maybe you're going to want to lower the threshold for that particular scenario so you catch more of that but the goal of a tuning and optimization always is to number one look at your scenarios see which ones are productive um, and look at the ones that are not productive really and be able to tune them in a manner so that either you're going to get less of those bad alerts or 
maybe even decommission that particular scenario, right? Back to my, my remote deposit capture um, behavior deviation rule. If that has never resulted in a case, you know, maybe it's time to, to get rid of that particular rule and replace it with um, you know, a, a, a rule that is looking at remote deposit capture, but just for excessive activity. Maybe you just put in a, a threshold that says, I don't, you know, based on my, my scenario that I had before about behavior deviation with remote deposit capture, never produced anything productive. Uh, so we're gonna decommission that one. We don't wanna have no rules for remote deposit capture. Let's put in an excessive rule um, backed with statistical analysis that identifies customers that are in, in an interesting um, interesting level of activity and set your threshold properly and test that one and see if that works. So the tuning and optimization, we, we think a lot about you know, doing below the line testing to identify if there's productive alerts below the threshold that you have, if there isn't moving above that, doing above the line testing and seeing where you can raise that threshold. But the other part of it is, hey, these are the scenarios I have turned on. Are they the right scenarios for me? Are they actually giving me productive stuff? And right. if not, decommission <clears throat> some of them and maybe turn on other rules if your monitoring system has that capability. Any thoughts? Yeah, uh, you know, I agree completely with, with what you're talking about. And I, I think the ultimate goal here is how do I get the most bang for my buck or efficiency? Right. Wise, um, my one of my thoughts while you were speaking there was: Is there another way to monitor that remote deposit capture? Maybe that's an, an area of the bank that has the ability to use the platform for RDC and can monitor it at that level through a report type of an environment, or you set a policy, some something to establish the control there because that's ultimately what we're trying to do I, I think the biggest thing I would add though would be does your system allow for individual tuning based upon the client whereby you've got a client that's continually hitting on your scenario because of the way the the, the parameters are set up but that's normal behavior for that client can you set unique parameters for individual clients so that you're now tuning, calibrating at, at the client level. Um, I think this is, you know, the ultimate way to go and look at this stuff um, if you have the resources to do it. But I think you also need to be looking at, do you have the resources to, on a periodic basis, say, do I need to reevaluate that customized setting? The example we used to talk about was you've got a grocery store pushing cash and they keep hitting on the structured transaction report. So you bounce the parameters up. Well, what happens if another grocery store moves in down the, the block? All of a sudden, their activity may drop substantially and the previous parameters you jacked up are no longer applicable. So documentation of those unique settings, I think is, is ultimately uh, critical for this process. A great point. There are, you know, a, a handful of monitoring systems out there where you can set individual thresholds for individual customers based on the scenario, which are great. But you br you bring up a great point. Within the tuning and optimization of the system, you need to tune and optimize those individual thresholds as well and make sure they still make sense. And then some systems don't allow you to do it at the customer level, but they will have a a 
suppression or you're not suppression is a bad word with the regular <laughs> to call it you know hibernation where you know if you if you adjudicate an alert a specific number of times as being okay for that customer then potentially the the score of that alert will go under your threshold and hibernate for a period of time and then come back up later so you can reassess um, again another thing that you need to tune and optimize within the 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 tuning and optimization, you know, the time frame of that can be a month or six months or a year. Uh, the, the number of alerts that are required to start reducing the score can be manipulated, all those kinds of things. So great point. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to add one more that you just made me think of um, sure. parameter wise and tuning. Um, a close friend of both of ours, Anna Rentschler, uh, years ago taught me something about setting these parameters. And one of the things she would do is don't do 30 or 31 days at the month, do 40, uh, do, do an odd number so that you're capturing the both sides of the calendar line. Um, something that, you know, somebody's like, well, I, I can push 12 cash transactions through my account in a one month time frame. If you start to extend that time frame in kind of a, a non-structured fashion by the calendar, you might catch things that are bleeding over. So just a thought on tuning. A great point. You know, there are customers that are trying to be um, outsmart you. Trying to outsmart you, right? <laughs> and and they might yeah. they might be smart enough to know that your systems, you know, that AML monitoring systems basically work on a monthly basis or whatever. And might say, hey, I, are, I know I already did three cash trans transactions this month. I'm going to wait till the first so it doesn't pop up. And so a great, a great thing, right? If you had it at yeah. 40 or 45, you'd capture all that, all those shenanigans. I, I, I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, Tough. Moving on, um, our next topic is maintenance of data and, you know, being in the loop about changes at your institution. Do you want to take that topic? Absolutely. Um, to me, this this is almost one that we could have put, you know, as number two, because when we start talking about monitoring systems, as we've always said, junk in, junk out, um, do you know that you have quality data um, from all of your systems? And have you, uh, if you will, a data index or some form of tracking how is this data getting into the system who mapped it um, what data does the system want versus what data do i have access to they're not always one-to-one -one. your system may want a particular type of a cash transaction code but your teller system may not be able to provide it um, so these are some some issues that I think are critical with respect to maintenance of data and having that documentation. But I think in, in, the, in the more common scenario, what happens when your bank switches core systems? They're likely gonna switch teller systems because they kind of go hand in hand. Once in a while you'll see a mismatch there. But are you at the table when they're doing those discussions and those reviews of systems to say, you know, am I going to have clean cash data to go into my AML monitoring system? Or is this going to be, is it going to create a gap? I mean, I think this also goes hand in hand with, uh, you know, are you sitting at the table when they decide to do that new product offering or go after that new client? So a lot to be 
thought about on the data quality front um, that I think often is overlooked. And I think um, I've, I've had numerous experiences where it's like, you know, an examiner says, well, we saw that in the system at this bank. Well, that system runs X platform, the bank you're in now runs Y platform, and that data is not available. And, and that's something that I've had a lot of discussions with the examiners on is, is it's not always the system, it's oftentimes the data. Just one addition, great, great points there. Um, you know, being at the table, but also just being in the loop when the folks that run your host system and your teller system and all that kind of thing, when they're changing codes, being in the loop for that. You know, I've seen instances where a bank has taken, you know, code 999 means ATM cash deposit, but then for some reason they had to use 999 that's now, you know, a reversal of an ACH and the 999, <laughs> the, the, the ATM cash deposit is now, you know, 782 and nobody told the folks that are running the monitoring system and now you're getting you know uh, ACH reversals as cash activity and all that kind of thing so just making sure that number one you've educated the folks that can make those types of changes to let you know prior to doing it so you have awareness and can change when you need to um, so just I think that's another thing to add um, you're nine 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 made me think of something from the, from the old days. Years ago, and I think it's still to a degree out there, is you've got somebody doing an onboarding, and actually this is probably more of a historical scenario, where they were opening an account, and the person didn't immediately present a social security number, and maybe they were a W-8 customer, I-10, and so they just put in 99999 so they can continue to move through the process. Right. And what would happen is you would start aggregating at a tax ID level and you'd have all of your WA customers aggregate under 999. Right. So again, be, be cognizant of are there shortcuts that your people on the front line are doing to try and move through the processes that are actually putting junk into your system. So it's real critical to find these right away. So it's fun how these things spark memories too. And yeah. now you're talking about that, sparks one for me that I think is a, is a, a great tip that folks can use potentially. So it, you know, many monitoring systems will use the NAICS codes, the NAICS codes, however you want right. to pronounce that. People say it different ways, or business types. Basic. <laughs> But, but you can also use that to your advantage if, if that is a, a field that your monitoring system can use. You can create your own code, right? As long as it fits that, that uh, field, maybe it's a seven digit field or whatever. You can come up with your own codes that identify cash, cash, intensity, cash intensity or you know, a PEP or whatever, and use that if, if there's limited fields within your monitoring system, you can manipulate that NAICS field to your advantage and come up with your own codes potentially. So something to think about. Um, no, I, I'm, made me think of one more. <laughs> Go for it. So on the NASIC codes, NAICS codes, um, Make a cognizant decision to say, are we going to use all 69 plus thousand of these codes? 
are we going to truncate these codes at a particular digit level, whether it's four or five? I mean, if, if you're an agribank, does it really matter whether your client is a wheat farmer or a corn farmer, or is it just a farmer? And in doing such, by aggregating at a higher level, you're more likely to get peer groups that lend itself for monitoring. Um, if, if you have one individual with one NASIC code, that NASIC code really doesn't do anything for you. Right. At the point you start aggregating and creating a statistically valid database, now we can say, why is this wheat farmer out of 400 farmers bringing in all this cash and nobody else is? So a lot of people think granularity on these business type codes, and, and I would ask you to challenge that and, and, and maybe move up so that you have fewer groups with more in. A great point. You can't have a peer group of one. And, and <laughs> no. in, in many instances, even a peer group of, of 10 uh, isn't enough to be able to actually have a scenario that's built for that. You're going to have an outlier at both ends of the spectrum that's going to throw things off and, and that kind of thing. So, all right, moving on. Um, our, our last topic here is... Um, when to upgrade to a new version or a new system. So I'll jump into that. I mean, it, upgrading to a new version in many instances can be an entirely new system. Uh, for you know, I've been through instances where a, a, a vendor has completely changed the way that they, they want the data to flow into the system. So moving from version five to version six is basically an absolutely new installation because you need to build a new ETL based on that new, um, way they want the data flowing in and all that kind of thing. So it, it can be a pain. And in many instances, it's, it's about money. Um, you know, if you, if you have to pay for the new version in, in many contracts, it's, it's, Hey, you're getting on at version five and it's free for version 5.1, 5.2, 5.3, all that kind of thing. But when we go to six, there's something you have to pay um, to do that. So sometimes that comes into play. Do you have the capacity to, to deal with the UAT that goes along with the new system version um, and all that kind of thing? So I, I, I always think that it's good to be on the latest version of a monitoring system because normally they have changed things. They have enhanced it. Um, you know, feedback from folks that are using the system, they have fixed that kind of stuff. And it, it normally makes sense to do that uh, as long as you have capacity and, and, and the, the, the money to do it and all that kind of thing. Um, moving to a brand new system, I think is really painful. And there have been instances where I have counseled clients to hold off on doing that. Um, because, and, and you know, this feeling almost, and, and I don't want to disparage any of the third party monitoring systems, right? But nobody's absolutely happy with the tool that they have in place. And you know, I've talked to people, they say, well, I'm not happy with what I have now. I want to implement this. And I'm always, well, talk to the people that have that. And they're likely not as happy as you think they are. So yeah. again, you know, take, ripping out an old system and putting in a new one is going to take you at least a year normally from signing the contract to having it up and running in a production environment. Your, your team. I like your optimism. Yeah. You know, maybe it takes <laughs> two or five, who knows? But you know, you, you have a specific amount of capacity to deal with that. And then when you turn on a new system, normally your regulator is gonna expect that you have it uh, side by side for a period of time. And that means that you're gonna have to have folks dealing with the alerts out of this one and the alerts out of this one. So there's all sorts of 
things that go along with that. And, and so my caution to folks thinking about that would be, is it absolutely necessary? Have you fully utilized all the functionality of the system that you have now? Maybe you should go back to the vendor and say, hey, I need a new training session. I, you know, you've turned some new things on in this that I don't completely understand. Tell me how to do it. And, and fully uh, delve into the system that you have, tune it and optimize it, turn on different things, all that kind of thing before you make the decision to, to move to a brand new system. And I know you're going to have some thoughts on this, so, so feel free to jump in. Yeah, a lot, a lot of memories come back on that. Um, I'm, I'm in agreement with you totally on it's often best to be on the most recent release and, and build, et cetera, um, from a standpoint of getting support. Because when you call in uh, to your vendor, the support team is going to be looking for, you know, what what's on the table new and where's our state of the art today not oh you're on four versions back how did it work back then um support becomes more challenging with with that well, and some, um completely agree sometimes with sometimes they they just won't support it anymore right they they right. will say oh, hey, no sunset. you're on version four that was sunsetted and we won't even help you because we're on version eight right absolutely um and it, it's it's not that they that vendors necessarily want to you know strand clients there, but it becomes harder to maintain multiple versions and have the knowledge base to do that. And each time you add a new wrinkle to it, you've got to go back and say, well, what does that mean for people on previous releases? So um, I, I think it's good that you understand that um, from a standpoint of looking at a new system um, in complete agreement. Go out and talk to people that are on that system and not necessarily who the vendor supplies for you. Go to a user group meeting of your host system and ask your, your, your SAM or your strategic account manager, whatever they're called, and say, do you know anybody else that's on system X? and have those conversations. Um, I think key elements here uh, in, in dealing with, it's kind of a vendor management issue, is get verbiage when you, if you're gonna switch systems that say, when you do upgrades, you're gonna support me with training so that I understand how to use that upgrade. So that it's not a, oh, let me turn you over to our you know, our, our staff of training people and it's gonna be at X dollars an hour. Um, I, I think those are pieces you can be kind of aggressive on on the front end uh, if you're gonna give your business to that vendor. I, I like the, the user group point when uh, I was a banker and we were thinking about upgrading systems, we did have a vendor that let us go to a user group and it was, it was great because you got Kind of unfiltered discussion, especially you know at the the happy hour after, um, folks were willing to tell you, you know what their their pain points were with the system and all that kind of thing, and it was better than just reaching out to folks that the vendor supplied to you to reach out to, which is great. And I I have a funny story. I remember talking to a client who actually couldn't get into a user group meeting, but went. And they were local, so they went to a the bar uh, at the hotel where the user group was and just hung out 
at the, the bar there and met all sorts of people that use the system and did the same thing, asked all the questions and got all sorts of good feedback. So if you're ingenious, you might be able to figure out something like that. Well, and, and having been a vendor my, my whole life, um, your, your story rings loud and clear with me because we would have user group meetings and you would invite a prospect and it was critical where you sat that prospect. <laughs> wanted them to sit next to Chuck Taylor because Chuck is our, our guy, he's our best reference, et cetera. So if you're that invitee, stroll around the room and find new people as well. I mean, just scatter it a little bit, but yeah, a lot of memories from some of that stuff. And, and one last point, if you're thinking about a new system, you go through the RFP process, you have the demonstrations and all that kind of thing, you know, have um, potentially have a third party help you with that and at least maybe sit in on the demos and, and be able to ask questions and that kind of thing. Folks that are familiar with the system and, you know, not a, a sales pitch here, but I've done that for clients where. Uh, I've sat in on demonstrations with them and taken notes and been kind of a silent person, but I have weighed in sometimes and asked questions, especially when I know that the vendor isn't making the right distinction between um, um, conf configuration and customization, because it comes down to that many times. Configuration in the language of a vendor normally means it's something that can be done without changing code. And customization is something where somebody actually has to write some new code, change some stuff around, Configuration is, is less costly than customization, and you need to kind of think about that kind of thing. All right, I think we're almost out of time. Um, one last topic, Tim, uh, in regards to sanctioned screening systems and models. Any just quick ideas about that? You know, overall, they're, they're a little bit different animals, but these same principles all apply. Um, you need to be looking at your data sources, your risk assessment, calibrating it back to the risk assessment you know, all the things we've talked about for the last half hour. Awesome, thanks. All right, this has been our latest installment of an AML Rights Source video blog. Thank you for listening and please reach out to Tim or I if you have any questions. Thank you. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks everyone, bye.